The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain. I'm retired from medical practice, and I'm now an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Today's episode is Autism, Optimism for Family Caregivers. And here's what I've learned about optimism, sorry, autism and optimism from family caregivers who've been my guests on Family Caregivers Unite. First, autism is a disorder of the brain. Physicians don't hold out much or any hope of cure. And at best, medications bring limited help. Yet, there are good reasons for optimism. Optimism from accepting autism for what it is. Optimism for, from detecting autism early. Optimism from help that meets the needs of children and their family caregivers. And here's an instance. One of my guests told us online that her family couldn't go out together because their autistic child might, without warning, dart into the traffic. Then they got a trained dog guide. Now she told us, they are able to go out together as other families do. And that, in my, my book, is good reason for real optimism. So to talk about things that bring optimism for family caregivers, our guests today are Ralph Savarez and Linda Huron. Uh, Ralph, I'd like to say a little bit about him first, and then Linda. Ralph authored the book, Reasonable People, A Memoir of Autism and Adoption, which Newsweek called a real-life love story and a passionate manifesto for the rights of people with neurological disabilities. His 13-year-old son, who typed to communicate, wrote the final chapter. Once written off as profoundly retarded, he is now 18 and a straight-A student in an advanced curriculum at the local high school. Ralph is also the co-editor with his wife, Emily, of a special issue of Disability Studies Quarterly. They highlighted the work of 20 self-advocates involved with autism. Ralph's currently working on a book titled A Dispute with Nouns, Autism, Poetry, and the Sensing Body. He teaches American literature, creative writing, and disability studies at Grinnell College in Iowa. Linda, Linda Huron is president and director of York Autism Center based in Ontario, Canada. Established in 2008, the center offers services for children and families involved with autism. And now she's starting what she calls the Making Small Talk Academy. 
the Academy offers the full Ontario school curriculum online. It also offers a typical school classroom in which students are supported as individuals to excel in areas of promise. She's an experienced uh, residential social worker with a background of living with adults in a community teaching independence skills. She's worked in a newly established community classroom for children with Asperger syndrome, that's a particular type of autism. And then, after four years in the classroom, she set up her business to support families struggling with the many challenges confronting their children. She started by offering social skills classes from a local church hall. So, welcome to the show, Ralph and Linda. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start off with Ralph. First question with Ralph, please. Please tell us more about your own professional background and your experience as a family caregiver, uh, obviously in the context of autism. Sure. Um, So my wife and I adopted our son at the age of six from foster care um, in the state of Florida. And as you heard from Gordon, um, he carried the label of profound mental retardation. He was in diapers, in fact. And so he came to live with us at six, and within two weeks, my wife, who's really very good at toilet training kids with neurological disabilities, he was out of his diapers, and we started, we immediately included him against the wishes of everybody in the school system in northern Florida, and, uh, you know, slowly but surely, um, he made great gains um, with very basic communication skills, and then... By third, by really the beginning of fourth grade, by the end of fifth grade, he he became literate, um, and that was incredibly slow. But once he broke the code of reading, he really took off, um, and pretty much caught up with and surpassed his uh, peers um, academically. So, um, you know, my experience is both personal as a, as a dad, but also I work in the field of disability studies and write a lot about um, autism. Right. Linda, same question, really. Your professional background and how you became involved in providing programs for children and their families involved with autism. Okay. So I was involved with families and children um, in England, and I started about 20 years ago. Um, I I became interested um, first through um, the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. I had to have volunteer hours, and so I I, um, got hooked up with the local um, Citizen Advice Bureau where they offered volunteer hours for families and with children who had disabilities. This eventually led to um, a a college diploma in social studies and my first job working with adults with a mental disability as a residential social worker. This career continued through different jobs, residential and and daycare settings, where I was planning programs and writing curriculums and involved in the community with teenagers and and adults. Um, The final job I was doing before I left um, England was um, I was working in the College of Further Education, a bit equivalent to our, our Seneca College, um, working with children and adults with disabilities, and they were obtaining certificates and credits to graduate alongside their fellow peers. It was amazing to see that because um, a lot of these children and adults, people weren't expecting them to, to graduate, and um, they did, and that was really exciting. Um, in the day centre, I actually got to meet Lady Di, too, because she was one who was opening the, mm-hmm. the centre at the time. I finally moved to Canada as a result of my husband's job, and, and that's when, like you said, Gordon, I was involved in working with one of the children's schools as a children's youth worker and involved in the community classroom. And then that has led to me opening the um, York Autism Centre and inv- um, evolving programs for families and for children. 
and that's where we are now. Right. Ralph, what led you to write your book, you know, Reasonable People, a memoir of autism and adoption? And who, who's the intended reader? Well, I mean, I, um, the intended reader, I, I think, is the general reader. It's not an academic book. I, I, I write plenty of stuff that have, you know, that has maybe 20 readers. This was, a, you know, meant for the general public, and especially for families with um, autism. So my son's story, uh, I, I refuse to imagine that it's extraordinary because I've met lots and lots of other so-called classical autistics, folks who don't speak and appear to be entirely out of it because they're engaging in repetitive behavior or not looking you in the eye and the like. And so we wanted to tell folks that autism hasn't been cured. My son still is very, very autistic. But what we know of autism, especially the so-called more severe forms of it, is uh, very poor and often quite wrong. So we wanted to show, look, look what's possible. Um, we've taught this kid how to read. Um, look what he's doing with this knowledge. Um, maybe other families could be uh, less negative. I think there's so much hysteria about autism, as and the phrase devastating disorder all, almost always accompanies it in the States. And we wanted to say, hey, um, autism clearly has some very, very tough challenges, but it also comes with some gifts, um, gifts of memory, of perception, of insight. And if we relax, especially as parents, about this, um, I think we can create a more hospitable uh, space for, for folks with autism to have fulfilling and meaningful, uh, meaningful lives. Linda, it's really the same question, but not about your book, about a book, but about your experience. What was it in your experience that you now build into your programs? Well, um, listening to parents um, like Ralph, listening to what they have to say, um, and from teachers as well, trying to get the professionals who work closely with the children so that I have an idea of where the child is, especially within the social skills classes. And um, We hear a lot that the children don't have enough support at recess and there's a lot of issues where they're left by themselves. And I, I like to work within my social skills classes to, to enable these children and equip them with the skills they need to play the games that the other kids are playing and to know the rules of the game. And so they're accepted and, and they're more... They're more rosy, attractable to the other children, their typical peers, to, to want them to go and play with them and be included in it. Um, also, um, the age of the children, too, that's also important. We need to make sure that the children are all put together at a similar age, not, not necessarily the physical age, but the mental age as well, because that's important. That helps with, with doing the programs as well. Um, and, and always changing the programs. We can't just keep the programs the same. They have to be change frequently um, to keep up with the child, how they're developing and changing too, because they improve and, and, and change all the time. And so we need to be on top of it too and change as, as quickly as what the children do. Um, we have to remember it's all, it's all positive. We have to be positive for these children and for their families too, because they have a lot of issues like Ralph was saying, and we need to see the strength that these children have to offer us. Just say another word about or two. We've not very long before the break, but just another word about the strengths that the, these children that you're, you're working with have. Linda? Yeah. Um, we, we don't know all the strengths our children have, we, but um, like Ralph was saying, we, we need to look for the positives in them. Um, I, I'd work a lot with children with Asperger's and high-functioning autism, and um, the, um, they come in stereotypically with that they're very obsessive on topics. I always like to flip that and say, okay, they might be obsessive, but how much can they teach us? 
they know so much they're experts in that field can't we use that as an expertise and tap into their knowledge and let them teach us for once instead of us teaching them all the time let's use that child's strength in that area um, we know a lot of the kids are good on um, laptops computers they're all very electronic it's how their mind seems to work it seems to help them flow easier with their communication and with their writing skills and let's use that strength too let's, let's encourage them to use what they can I mean, I think that's really important. I've said this at least 50 times. If, if uh, the Allies had hired autistics to break the Japanese and German codes, the World War II would have ended two years earlier. And think about the millions of people who wouldn't have died. I agree, because we don't know how much these kids have. Oh, we, yeah. we only see a very small part of, of what's in there. And we need to encourage them to, to grow and to, and to have the confidence as well to bring it out how they can. No, and do, do we expect of a neurotypical infant that that infant is going to write a poem, you know, within three days of being born? No, That's we invest right. in the infant yep. so that when they're 15, 16, 17, they start doing really uh, amazing things. Why should we expect an, an autistic kid who's having all sorts of sensory issues mm -hmm. uh, to suddenly be able to perform? And then we make a judgment, and then yep. that's it? Are you that's kidding? Right. I, I'm totally with you, Linda, this idea that the, these autistic kids develop as much as, as neurotypical kids do. They just do it in a different way. It's a, that's right, and we just have to be open to that way, and, and sadly right. we're not. We, we get stuck in our little boxes, and we forget that people are thinking and working outside of those boxes. Now, talking of boxes, <laughs> we've got to take the break and pay the rent, but we really are coming back on this story. So it is time for that break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Linda Huron and Ralph Savarese. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We definitely will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are, or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Help, you know I need someone. 
You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guests, Linda Huron and Ralph Savarez. Our topic is Autism Optimism for Family Caregivers. So let's talk about key points and key challenges for family caregivers involved with autism. So Ralph, first of all, what are the really key points in your book? Uh, and these are the points for family caregivers, I'm after. And why do they provide grounds for optimism? So, so I think there are any number of myths about autism that can cause parents to imagine certain things are not possible. So there are, there are myths about mental retardation. Um, recent studies have shown, for example, there was one big study by a psychologist named Meredith Goldberg Edelson who went back and looked at all of the articles that make claims about mental retardation from about the late 1930s until 2003, and more than three-quarters had no empirical data so that the, the judgment of retardation was emerging from some visual you know, apprehension of how somebody seemed different. And I think it's also true with respect to uh, claims of empathy, the lack of empathy, or autistic kids prefer to be alone. I'll tell one anecdote about my son. The first time I met my, the, the boy who would be my son, he took me by the finger without looking at me into the family room, sort of sat me down on the couch and started mildly putting his head up against my head. Not so much that it hurt, but um, I was like, what's going on here? And many years later, when we taught him how to read, I asked him about this, and he said, Dad, I was trying to say hello. (laughs) And what's interesting to me is that if you're looking for autistic kids to give you the rich parental relationship that you so desire in the form that neurotypical kids give it to you, you're going to be disappointed. But if you can open yourself up to um, mashing your heads together, learning how to, you know, how to be with each other in an alternative way, I would tell you that my relationship with my son is as rich as any relationship I could ever have. Is it idiosyncratic? You bet it's idiosyncratic. So I think you've got to be open to this idea uh, of difference and also be somewhat skeptical of these, these common myths that want to tell you your kid has no intellectual potential, your kid is not interested in the world, your kid has no empathy for, for uh, somebody else. One last little anecdote. Four years ago, my nephew died of a brain tumor, and my brother and his wife were incredibly distraught. And I just taught my son the word reasonable, um, and it's the, obviously the title of the book, um, because he was trying to get me to wear the same clothing to work every day, and I, I started getting up earlier and earlier, and he got up earlier and earlier. And so finally I said, you know, be reasonable, and we worked through this word. And then jump ahead, my, my uh, brother and his wife are coming for Thanksgiving two months after the death of their son, and, and my sister-in-law is incredibly distraught. And my son takes her by the hand over to the computer, and he types out, do you have reasonable people to help you with your hurt? Now, you or I might not phrase it that way, but but how wonderful is that? Why must these kids express affection in exactly the way that everybody else does? So so be open to alternative forms of affection, of intelligence, and you'll get, as a parent, you'll get what you want, what you so desperately want. Right. Now, Linda, still on the key things, 
maybe relating to what Ralph just said or others. Um, what are the really key things in your programs, that, and why do they offer grounds for optimism? Linda? Yeah. Well, the key, the key programs that we offer are things like social skills and camps. Um, and to me, that offers to the parents and family, not only does it offer some respite time for them, it also is enabling them to um, function within their community and society that they live in. So we'll be teaching them how to interact with their peers, how to cope with their um, emotions and deal with their emotions and others, um, and problem solve, communication skills to improve. Like Ralph says, we, we can't say how that child is going to communicate, but they have their own style, and, and so it's, it's helping that child to develop their own communication style and skill. Um, all the skills that typical children take for granted, our children or the children with autism need to be taught, and so we, we help that and equip them with that and to give the parents the support as well within this. Um, we also have high school children who work with us, and they become the mentors and the coaches as well to the children with the, with the autism, and that's pretty cool to see that relationship develop and for parents to see that neurotypical kids want to be around their children too and want to be friends and want to befriend them and, and do things with them. Um, we also work with um, IBI, the Intensive Behavioral Intervention, and that's helping and teaching skills through changing negative behaviors. And um, we're, we're looking for desirable behaviors uh, with these children, so it's a lot of reinforcing and a lot of redirecting certain behaviors. Um, we're looking for successes with the children and any little milestone that that child reaches. We have a huge party with those kids and the family because it may be a baby step to us, but it's a huge step for the child, and that's important to give the child and the family's confidence so that they can move on to the next step, whatever it is, the next milestone in their life. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to interrupt on one brief technical point. You both use the word neurotypical. I think what what I'd be right in saying, that what you really mean is what most other people would call normal behavior of children. Is that right? Yeah, but I I would never use the word normal. I think part of the problem here is when you talk about optimism, is, is imagining one, one kind of human being is normal and the other kind of human being is abnormal. Yeah. And a diversity model takes some of the pressure off of all kids um, to, to, to subscribe or to perfectly line up with some supposed ideal of what, what it means to be, to be human. So I try to use the word neurotypical to say, look, there's neurotypical and neuroatypical. Um, but there's no necessary value attached to one over the other. Perfectly fair. Yeah. Now, you've, you've mentioned, I'm just going to pick you up. No, it's not picking you up. It's just pursue you on something. Key challenges for family caregivers. I mean, one of the things that you've both been saying very clearly is that family caregivers need to, need to adapt their understanding of the communications and the signals coming from their children because the signals may be not what they're expecting or what they're understanding. Now, assuming I've got that more or less right, what are the other key challenges that you would point to for family caregivers when they're involved with autism? Well, I mean, any number of them. Let's start with sensory issues. Um, There's more and more research showing just how uncoordinated the senses are or how hypersensitive or hyposensitive, all in the same body. If you were being, let's say your brain made it seem as if it were the 4th of July in the States with fireworks all of the time, how, how easy is it going to be to really focus on, a, on an assignment in school? So you've got to work on sensory issues. I think autism, it's certainly the kind of autism my son has, 
classical autism is a movement disorder. So his fine motor skills are very, very, um, uh, or at least they, they used to be very, very poor. And so if you want to teach a non-speaking kid how to type, you can't just put the computer in front of the kid. There's also anxiety, profound anxiety. And I think treating that anxiety uh, with medications very, very carefully, but also working on biofeedback kinds of stuff, positive storytelling, how do I get my son when he's feeling, you know, about to have a panic attack to begin to control that himself through certain kinds of stories or rituals that will work to to calm him down. But so those are the problems inside this uh, neuroatypical body. But there's also a huge challenge of our culture, which can be really bigoted um, and really intolerant of difference. And so I want to work on it in both places, both help my son work with this body and this brain um, to, to, you know, better make it in the world. But on the other hand, also I'm working on the, the culture to say, come on, relax a little bit about this. Make room for this kind of alternative uh, way of being human. There are lots of things we can learn from autistics. Right. Yeah. Linda, just... I'm going to come straight back to you on that. Okay. Now, my, my question to you is, those are key challenges that Ralph's told us about. Um, please say how your various programs help family caregivers in particular, but also the children, with those challenges and any others that you recognize. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Ralph was saying. There's, there's a lot of things like that. Um, there's, I mean, others too, the anger management and disorganization skills that these kids have, especially, um, I, like I said before, I work a lot with high-functioning autism and kids with Asperger's, and they suffer a lot with those. So... My programs, the York Autism Center programs, we do a lot of one-on-one working with things like anxiety and anger management. We have a psychologist involved to help us go through the steps in, in the correct order. And like Ralph said, through stories, um, social stories are great for kids um, with autism. It's a very repetitive story done at whatever level the children is, and it explains specifically the behavior that they're displaying and the behavior that we need that makes people accept them. Sadly, um, we're looking for them to fit into the society and not the society fit into into these kids. Um, So the stories will help them with that. And it's done on a daily basis with teaching around the stories and and that kind of thing. Um, Organization skills, teaching them organization skills within within a group and and individually too. How do I make sure I get all my schoolwork home? How do I know what homework I have to do? And again, that's where the computer system comes great because everything's on there with, with all the programs now that they can type in homework and parents can check it to and know. Um, I've also found that their processing skills can be different to ours. It may take longer for them to process because of all the sensory issues like Ralph mentioned. that are going through the, the children's head at the time and the adult's head. We can't expect them to give us a response immediately because they've got to decipher what's being said. So we're teaching the children that it's okay to take your time and, and process what's being said and then answer the question. Right. Um, it just goes through. And, and help with language as well, with speech and language development, because children often have some kind of um, disability there as well and with developmental delays. So we help work on that and, and communication, whether it's through um, keyboards or through picture exchange system, um, signing or whether it is with the verbal as well, whatever it is. So, so that's how the programs do sort of help with that. Right. We've got a f- only a few seconds left, but Linda, still with you, please give us an example of a story that you would use in a particular situation for a particular child. Um, there's so 
many. Go on. <laughs> uh, anxiety. I have yes. a child who suffered hugely with anxiety issues, and he's been coming to me for intensive behaviour intervention for about six months. He's been coming now. Um, he couldn't sit within a classroom. He was up and down every time the door opened. He was on the edge of his seat wondering who it was, what were they going to do to him, were they going to hurt him. His hair would, he'd come into the centre with his hair flat by the time he left, it was sticking up on end. After six months, he's now able to sit within the classroom. He's calm. He's, he doesn't mind if the door's opened. He's waiting to see who it is and then greet that person. And his hair stays flat when he leaves the centre as well after a session. So to, to me, that's a huge step that that boy's made. Um, and it's been awesome to see him on the journey. And it's exciting. And we want to know what the next step it is he's going to be taking. Right. Now, it is the break time. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Linda Huron and Ralph Savarese. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned because we have much more to talk about. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hosted by Kim Hahn, founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood. Conceive On Air with Kim Hahn, celebrating the creation of families. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Linda Huron and Ralph Savarese. Our topic is autism, optimism for family caregivers. Now let's talk about experience of autism and the signals that it sends to family caregivers. 
And Ralph, uh, please tell us more about the experience of you and Emily, your wife, with your son with autism in regard to the kind of signals that he sent you um, and has sent you over, a period of, over the period of time that he's been with you. Sure, and, and I, I should say that my son's um, experience of autism was complicated by a really, really unimaginably difficult experience in foster care with abuse. There was lots of abuse. So, so you know, a good deal of our experience, especially in the early years, was trying to figure out, is this the anxiety of autism? Is this the anxiety of somebody who was, you know, brutally abused? How, how do we work with this? But, you know, you know, I told uh, your listeners that he was to- my wife toilet trained him in two weeks. When you see that uh, a kind of progress can be made, you invest even more. Um, you hold out hope for the future and say, it's fine. If this kid is, if, if he's not going to make the, this kind of progress, maybe he'll make another kind of progress. But I, I, as I noted, um, things like picture schedules, giving the child a way to communicate basic needs was huge. We saw our son calm a lot of his anger issues when we gave him a picture schedule or when we told him this is what this day is going to look like with photographs because he couldn't read at that point. And he had real trouble understanding spoken language. My son only um, became very fluent in deciphering spoken language after he learned to read, which is entirely different from the way the way neurotypical, neurotypical kids do it. So um, I, don't know, I don't know whether that exactly answers the question you're, you, you were asking, Gordon. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Linda, back to your programs. Yeah. You've got a classroom setting, and yeah. you do work online. Please tell us more about how you divide the type of work that the children do between being online, for example, where do they do it online? Is it at home or in the classroom? And things like that. How, sure. In other words, the practicalities. Yeah. Linda? Well, um, we do have a classroom, and the classroom is set within a typical school. Um, we have our own classroom, and we have three children in it at the moment. Um, their day starts, like anybody else's, we start with um, the O Canada. We start with notices. We start with circle time, and then we progress from there. Um, we, like Ralph was saying, with the pictures, we do make sure the children know exactly what's going to be coming up in the day. We're not going to say it's not going to change, but this is the rough idea of the outline of the day. So when they walk through the door till the time they leave, there's a schedule for them. Just to help relieve some of the anxieties that these children face on a daily basis. They need to know when, it, when the day is going to start and when it's going to finish. They can cope with the rest. Um, we then have the, um, the computers set up in the classroom. And within that, there, there is the Folk Ontario Board. So these children that I have are working at JK and SK level at the moment. They will do some, some programming on the, on the computers following the step-by-step. The computer will read it back to them. It talks to them, and it's very interactive so that um, for the children who are struggling with reading, it's there for them. We're there to help them with the processing information. We also have other programs on par with that that will help us with uh, reinforcing the skills that the children are learning on the computer, and it's more of a table work setup, like the children will be doing in a typical school. So we'll be having the math um, and the reading is done on a different on a different schedule. On top of that, we are offering individual behaviour programs too, um, to help with any anxiety behaviour issues that we're facing, and to help the parents with that too, so that we can go into the home and support them within the home. So there's programs up there, and the parents are keeping control of everything at home. If they, if they require that, that's what we're offering. 
And then because we're in a typical school, we have the bonus that we have um, the children for recess and for social skills, for lunch, for field trips, so that we can integrate fully within that school for that. Um, we started on Monday, and it's been phenomenal how the children have been accepted by the school already. Um, we have a lineup outside of the um, children just wanting to be part of the classroom, which is so exciting. And the parents have been so encouraged to see that, that they've been accepted straight away by the, by the school. Great. Ralph, um, you, I read out um, from your bio that your son was once written off as profoundly retarded, written off. What were the signals that told you that he wasn't to be written off? And what advice would you give to parents who are now in this situation with their child? Ralph? Well, the first thing I would say is, as a scholar working in the field of disability studies, um, I knew that we've been wrong, experts have been wrong repeatedly about mysterious disabilities. So, for example, cerebral palsy, the presumption of automatic retardation, and how, how long it took for uh, experts to realize we were wrong. Or if you think about deaf people in the 19th century and the correlation that, that, that people automatically made between an inability to speak um, and, 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 and intelligence or lack of intelligence. So I thought, you know, that was, that's humbling. I mean, if you're going to be honest about this, you have to concede the experts have been wrong in the past. Maybe they're wrong now. Maybe the particular strategies we've employed to teach reading aren't working, not that the kid is incapable of reading. And so th that was a big, big thing. And I think it's in line with, you know, Doug Bicklin talks about um, presuming competence or at least presuming possible competence, not shutting that, shutting that down. So I already, already spoke about the fact that my son learned to be toilet trained in two weeks after the foster care folks said he, he'll never be toilet trained. Um, and so you see little signs. You also, we also saw that he wanted to be with others. He just didn't know how to do it. And so how can you facilitate sociality in a way that is sensitive to his anxiety, his inability, at least at that point, to play? And what I would say is that every step of the way, there were signs of improvement and signs that we had no, no idea where this might end. Did we set off saying, this kid is a genius? No, we didn't. But, but slowly but surely, it became clear um, that he had all sorts of abilities. The final thing I would say, and this really pertains to his reading, I think a lot of parents bail too early, especially with these classical autistic kids. Um, he really was slow. It took me probably six months to teach my son the sign, the American Sign Language, for more. Um, it seemed incredibly slow. We had photographs of every object in the house with a computer icon, the American Sign Language uh, diagram, and then the word. And I, you know, and I privately sometimes said to myself, I don't think this is working. But when he finally broke the code of reading, and when we had simultaneously been working on his sensory issues, his OT issues, all of this stuff, he rocketed forward so fast so that if you bail and presume the kid's incapable, and maybe, you know, maybe it's just the, the particular method you've chosen, because I don't think you can teach, at least classical autistics, I don't think you can teach them reading the way we teach um, uh, other kids. Right. Linda, uh, what are the signals that family caregivers discuss with you, and what, what's the kind of advice you give to them? 
Okay, so I have a lot of the signals. A lot of it is around behaviour, so they come to me about that they're losing control within the home and the child's losing it at school. Um, how, it's, how, how their child's being taught within the school system um, and the support that they have doesn't always meet their child's needs. Um, that the kids are excluded from play activities uh, and birthday parties. So that's what parents... I have a lot of parents that have, have mentioned that to me. Um, and that's hard. It's sad as well for the parents. I always try and encourage the parents. Remember, it's child first, autism second, and that's what we're having to put out to everybody. Um, so that's, so we're, we're trying to work on that. Um, parents have to cling on to the positives as well within this, this situation. Um, and I liked how Ralph said that the experts get it wrong. The experts do get it wrong so many times. They, we have to find the right method for the children to be teaching it. Um, we try and get the parents in touch with all the local organizations and support groups so that they're not by themselves and not facing anything by themselves. And then we offer the programs that we have, um, the behavior management, the anxiety controls, the social skills, the IBI, the parent supports that we have. And if we need to do parent workshops, then, we'll be, then we introduce parent workshops too so that they, they're equipped with everything that they need. Right. Um, the, the break is looming, and I'm just going to ask you both very quickly to say, to confirm that inclusion is important for kids with autism, whether the inclusion is at school, work, or in the community. Ralph, first. Well, I mean, I, I think a big part of my son's success was having been included right from the beginning and fully included. Um, you know, almost the whole day, he might have a little pop-out to, to work on an OT issue or not be at lunch in the dining hall, whatever. But, I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it, that if you want kids who are autistic to learn a kind of behavior, typical behavior, let's put them around typical kids. Let's give them the kind of practice that allows them to work on social skills. Right. Um, and, and also just basic human dignity. My son is, uses the phrase meaningful participation, and he says, isn't it funny that with meaningful participation I can control my anxiety better? Yeah. Now, I'm going to um, just ask Linda quickly to say why inclusion is important. Um, like Ralph was saying, they need to learn from the typical peers. They need to be around them. Um, inclusion, I feel, is acceptance too, and they need to be accepted by their peers right. and by anybody they're with as well. Um, it helps build their self-esteem. It helps build their self-confidence, and we all need that building up at times, more so do these children with everything else that they're battling as well. Great. Now, it's that time again to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Linda Huron and Ralph Savarese. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccinello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Linda Heron and Ralph Savarese. Our topic is autism, optimism for family caregivers. Um, Broad point now, family caregiving is more and more important, not just for families, but also for the healthcare systems and society as a whole in North America, Europe, and beyond. So let's now talk about the things that need to be done to improve optimism building support for family caregivers who are involved with autism. And maybe we should stay with North America on that question, so go wider if you want to. So here we go. Let's suppose you're both politicians seeking election in your own districts in the U.S. and Canada, respectively, and your platform is to improve optimism building support for family caregivers. What would be a policy platform, and what would you say, what would you say to voters? Ralph, first, please. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the first thing, we, we really do have to talk about health care and access to various kinds of therapies, whether it's speech therapy, whether it's sensory integration, whether it's working with an occupational therapist. Um, families don't all have the same access. If, if an autistic child is born into an upper-middle-class family, it's much, much more likely that that child is going to get these services and that those services are going to make a significant difference. So we, we definitely have to... Um, you know, be more equitable with the way in which families have access. I think you also have to talk about respite care. Some of the horror stories you hear in the news about what sometimes happens to autistic kids um, can be at least in part attributed to parents who are incredibly run down and not having any support. Uh, relationships need that kind of work. Uh, people need a break. And so we've got to do a better job of, of providing that kind of support. People say that's really, really expensive. Are you going to invest now, or are you going to spend much, much more money when this child hasn't developed the skills that will allow either some sort of job or some kind of independent, largely independent living situation? And then the other thing that I've mentioned before is I think we really do, as politicians, if we are politicians, have to work on the cultural aspects here and create an environment of acceptance and respect and non-hysteria. Right. Thanks. And come back to that. Linda, what's your platform, please? Okay. It is um, the healthcare. <laughs> um, we need to make sure that it's available to everybody and that um, 
it's included alongside other therapies. So people who do have healthcare, it's covered along with speech therapy yeah. and OT physiotherapy. Um, also to make sure that funding is um, put in, in place early for IBI, that the children can get it within six months max of the, the diagnosis and that um, there's no four, five, six years wait list for the, these children. Like Ralph said, the, um, the more money we put in in the early stages when the children are still developing, and like anybody, we learn best when we're younger, is less money spent later on down the line by the government. We need tax breaks for these services too for families. These parents often still have to pay taxes on their, on their services over here. That needs to be reduced. We need more money so the, children, so the families can include more, have more therapies around. And inclusion policies. We need to make sure that people are accepted and included and that people are made accountable for this as well so that we know it's, it's going to be happening. Um, support within the education systems for families. Um, let the whole team that is working with the child into the school. If they're having therapy, let the therapy happen within the school so that the child can go home at the end of the school day and relax with the family and do things with their family rather than be having to take out for, for the support of the therapies. And advocates for the families too. These families need support as well with, who are going through the autism and we need good advocates for these families. Right. But first of all, I think you both really do agree with each other, but I'm going to ask you, Ralph, if you think there are any points that Linda's talking about that might not work in the U.S. Um, or that you perhaps have some reservations about, Ralph? I really don't. I mean, I, I would rather just add one point. If you look at how research dollars are being presently spent with a huge organization like Autism Speaks, the vast, vast, vast majority is going into finding a cure. Mm -hmm. And so it's only been the, the, the recently that a, an organization like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, run by Ari Niemann in the States, has said, wait a second, what about money for quality of life, job coaching, independent living, housing, these things that will make autistic lives more fulfilling and in turn um, make autism seem less hysterically devastating. So this, this, this furious push for a cure, and I have this feeling autism is an enormously complicated uh, biogenetic environmental um, um, disorder. And you're not going to get, I, I just, I, I find it really, really difficult to believe that we're going to come up with some sort of cure. We may come up with a test, which scares me to death, yeah. because then we're looking potentially at what happened with Down mm -hmm. uh, syndrome kids, and the abortion rates are incredibly high. But, but for me, let's talk about quality of life and investing in quality of life. And I think that, that will do a lot to take the pressure off of, you know, autism is this horrible horrible thing. It's not. It really isn't. I, I, I wouldn't change my son. I mean, if he decided he wanted to be neurotypical, that's another matter. But I wouldn't change him at all. Right. Linda, um, any disagreements with Ralph? Anything that you're saying, that he's saying that you don't think um, necessarily think would work here in Canada? Those kind of questions. Um, no, I, I agree with what Ralph was saying about the health care and the respite care. Respite is always huge for these families. Um, there is lack of support out there, even though there's respite workers there. Um, they, it would be great to see that they were all at a certain level. They were easy to get hold of. There was a, a, huge, cause there's a huge demand out there with the parents and the families. We need more respite workers. So if we could see an in increase in that and in the training, that would be amazing. Right. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, Ralph, coming back to you, you talked about creating greater awareness. And 
if I can make a comment here, I've heard that too, that, and put it in perhaps dramatic terms, they don't understand, and they are sometimes the professionals and sometimes the administrators and sometimes the public and sometimes the teachers. Now, I may be exaggerating somewhat, but let me ask you, how would you set about creating the level of awareness that you think is necessary to support the kind of things that both you and Linda are talking about? Self-advocacy. I mean, the, 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 you know, my son gives talks all over the United States, and, it, and sometimes we do them together, but it's much more effective when you see folks with autism advocating for themselves. And you, obviously a self-advocate doesn't just emerge spontaneously. You have to work with that person to get them to the point that he or she can advocate. And so an organization, I mentioned it before, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, um, I belong, I'm a board member of the, the Autism National Committee, um, where, where what we do is we, we foreground what autistic people are saying about themselves and their lives and what they want. And if we can be allies in this process, it will be less paternalistic um, and, and I think finally more effective. And, in, in, and here's one last reason to be very optimistic. We're living at a moment now where with the Internet, there are all sorts of autistic people who are publishing, are writing, are on blogs. It's not that hard to hear from autistics themselves. And I think the experts could really profit from, from listening to autistics more. Right. Linda, yeah. what, what, what do you say about that, promoting I, the understanding? I think Ralph's spot on. Um, Self-advocacy is the way to go. It's the only way to go. Um, we will see changes with that. Um, people will be accepting. And we've got so much to learn from these people. Um, they're the only ones. They know what's going on in their head. We cannot tell them what's going on. They're the only ones who can let us know. Um, and I, I, let, I agree entirely. Yeah. Let the parents stand up too. Let the parents be advocates right. as well for other parents so right. the children can be advocates for themselves and the parents can be advocates for parents. Ralph? I think it will change the things phenomenally. Ralph? You know, I, I, mean, I mean, it's sounding like a love fest here, I understand, but really <laughs> these, are, these are really, really, really important points. I have, I think about how much I've learned, and I'm still on the outside of my son's brain, the sympathetic outside, and there, I, I, I've watched myself come to certain conclusions, their interpretations of behavior, of looks, Mm-hmm. And, and I'm often wrong. Here's the thing I would, I, would, I would tell parents. Think about your neurotypical child, your adolescent neurotypical child. How frequently are you right about what your adolescent child is thinking, feeling, acting? You're not. And that's the problem with parents and adolescents. Right. So proceed with humility and, and enjoy the richness of this. I mean, I, I really, I really I can't convey to you how rich my own relationship with my son is. And I, I don't mourn for normalcy, not even half of one second. Right. Now, I'm going to come back to you in, a, in this way. Um, this program, this show, is aimed at family caregivers. And if either or both of you would like to suggest um, someone with autism who would be an advocate, self-advocate, maybe a family caregiver who would be an advocate, you know, people known to you who you've worked with or uh, colleagues of or friends of, I would be delighted, and I mean that most sincerely, to offer 
um, all of them an opportunity to tell their own stories, um, to advocate for themselves on this show, because that's what one of the things that I want this show to be, is a, is a place for voices of people who are doing what you are both doing, which is creating optimism, a sense of progress. And if I can, I'm an ex-academic too, Rob, I'm sorry, I hate to admit this, but I really do have the same concern that you do, that in our search for the cure, a lot of resources are consumed which aren't necessarily um, leading in the kind of directions that create the optimism which oh, both yeah. of you have spelt out in so, so effectively. So I'm going to wind up by saying, first of all, thank you to our listeners for this, and please do get back to us, email us or call in with any questions or comments you'd like to direct to Linda uh, and Ralph about the things they've been talking about. I want to say to um, Linda and Ralph, not just the ordinary thank you for sharing your experience and your insights and your advice. I want to say what you do is needed, what you do is important, what you do really is creating optimism, and it seems to me that optimism is the driving force that's going to bring about the success, not only in your programs, but the success that we need in society so that people with talents, people with skills, people with opportunities to be optimistic are in fact given the chance to deliver on the things that they can deliver on but are in their own particular ways. So lots of luck. Please let's stay in touch. You're doing great work. Now, in our next episode of Family Caregivers Unite, we'll talk about end-of-life care, caring and care. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being